Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, good morning, afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Matt Brawny. Matt, so good to be with you today. This week is shaping up to be an outstanding week. And this week, I'm really, really stoked because today we're going to get into something that we don't usually get into this part of subject. If you've been listening for a while, for the last several months, you know that I have a big NLP background, neuro-linguistic programming, and I really love communication, uh, uh, body language spotting, uh, sensory acuity, building rapport, and a lot of those types of things. So this week, we're going to venture off a little bit from the entrepreneurship and dive into a conversation with a former FBI agent, terrorist hunter, uh, John Yanarelli. Now, John, uh, very, very interesting guy. John had retired from the FBI after 20 years of service, more than that. And during that time, he was the FBI's national spokesperson. And on the FBI cyber division uh, uh, executive staff, he's been an FBI SWAT team member and assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's Phoenix division. And he oversaw all the criminal, cyber, and counterintelligence investigations throughout all of Arizona. And he's participated in many ex uh, extensive investigations, including things like the Oklahoma City bombing, the attacks on 9-11, the huge Sony hack, and so many more. Um, he's received the FBI Director's Distinguished Service Award. He's been selected from the ranks of the Bureau's 35,000 employees for this award. Uh, very, very impressive resume, as well as just a phenomenal man of integrity. And he has a new book that we're going to talk about called How to Stop a Terrorist Before It's Too Late. And we're going to get into what to do instead of profiling. We're going to talk about all that and more to keep you safe and to learn how people work today. John, welcome to the show. Are you there? Matt, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to jump into this with you. So I've been studying, you know, uh, call it body language and communication and certain things mean things, they don't mean things. I want to jump right in with you and say, you know, your background, did you always know you were going to be an FBI agent? How did that lay out for you? Did you start thinking you were going to be a cop, uh, metro or locally? Tell me a little bit of your story of getting into, roped into the FBI. Well, I can tell you that I knew I always wanted to be an FBI agent since uh, uh, FBI agent spoke at my ninth grade career day. And essentially, I made that my mission to get that job. Along the way, I became a police officer, did that for a number of years, wound up going to law school and get my law degree and practicing for a while because back in the day, the FBI was hiring lawyers and accountants and eventually got into the FBI and uh, was able to serve a full career there. When you say the FBI was or at least normally hiring accountants, lawyers. So when I think of FBI, right, like I know my thoughts are probably way off from, you know, shows and movies and things over the years that we get fed. What, what do the bulk of the, the workload really look like in the day of an FBI agent? And certainly you're in, in cyber, um, uh, uh, what's the word, the cyber division. So yours might be different than a field agent or Break down a little bit, just kind of teach us how does the system work? How does the structure work, basically? And then where did you fit in? 
So I will tell you that uh, cyber agent, bank robbery agent, whatever you're doing, you're all field agents because the reality is the work is out there in the field. You may be working on the computer or working in the office, but at some point you're going to have to go out and arrest somebody and you're going to have to interview people. The job of the agent is all about dealing with people. And uh, unlike a lot of what we see on television, which is for entertainment, the FBI, we tend to be very personable individuals because it's about getting to know people, talking to people, and being a bit of a chameleon that you can talk to anybody. On a given day, I can be talking to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Later in the day, I'm talking to a street person who is homeless and living out there but maybe saw something during a robbery. So the ability to communicate is paramount for what we look for. The reason we hire a lot of lawyers, accountants, certainly people with computer backgrounds now, people with language skills, because the crimes the FBI investigate are extremely complex. It's all federal law, and we are looking at it from a standpoint of being able to take this law, apply it to the violations that have occurred, hopefully bring people to justice so that we can keep the citizens safe. And, and speaking of keeping citizens safe, a, a big part of what you have not just studied, but what you really used in, in decades of a career, and it's part of what you've written into your new book, which uh, it, it just interests me like like nobody's business. Um, number one, I think it's important that we all like in a way like as, as a tribe of people, like we all are able to come together and the more that each person and groups of people know about spotting terrorism or about even you know spotting potential acts of violence or something dangerous. Um, and I think it goes to so many levels, I'm sure, as well, even if you're helping to spot someone who can be dangerous to themselves, not just uh, uh, attacking or doing something like that. I think it would just help all of us to know more about it. And then we're going to talk about how it translates to business world as well. Um, what sparked the idea for how to spot a terrorist before it's too late. Uh, what an incredible book title. The subtitle is 10 Things We Can All Do to Stop Terrorists Before They Kill or Hurt Us and How to Escape or Fight Back if Terror Finds You. Now, you've investigated a lot of these things. What sparked the idea that this would be something you really wanted to write about and get into even more depth for the public about? Well, for years, I was listening to government officials always saying, hey, if you see something, say something. But no one ever told us what we should be looking for. And I wanted to take the things that law enforcement focuses on and make it available to the public. So one of the dirty words out there is profiling. People talk about uh, the government profiling or going after people by profiling. Let me say unequivocally, law enforcement, the FBI does not profile. And the reason is, aside from the fact it would be unconstitutional, it doesn't work. Profiling doesn't tell you anything. We don't care what religion, race, or country you came from. What we look for are called indicators. And indicators are actions people take, physical, nonverbal actions, that by looking at these indicators, again, I don't care what color you are or where you're from, but if you're engaging in this indicator, that could be a sign of potential terrorism. That's what I wanted to teach the public by sharing 10 simple indicators everyone in law enforcement knows about and uses on a daily basis. When you said, if you see something, say something, instantly I thought, yeah, I've been hearing that since as long as I can remember. And then when you said, but they don't teach you what to look for, I thought to myself, yeah, I, 
I mean, the only thing I can imagine, because I travel a lot in airports, so I have this vivid image of an abandoned suitcase or duffel bag, which I've never seen, but you know, like that's what we got as public. We get trained for like in airports, but, and that's almost the only thing I can imagine. I don't know what to look for. When you talk about profiling, so we're doing, this is demographics, this is stereotypes, Tell me, are there any patterns at all in demographics or in profiles? Like, can you say, well, it's not 80%, but it's 15% of the time people are coming from a certain country or a certain race or a certain background? Or is it just complete, I don't know, like my grandpa would say, hogwash, and, and it's not even worth looking at? Well, it depends on the kind of profiling it, in terrorism you're talking about. So, for example, if you're... Uh, if it's a terrorism based in, uh, for example, white supremacy, and you might see, you're going to see a lot of white people from uh, within the United States or even from other countries that decide that they want to push that sort of agenda. Domestic terrorism here in the U.S., where that could be somebody blowing up a ski lift or burning down a building because they think the building doesn't belong in that particular environment, that could be anybody under the sun. And then, of course, you have different terrorisms from overseas that are proclaiming based on different faiths and essentially taking and misconstruing what the faith is to push their particular agenda. You might get people from particular countries doing that. But the reality is terrorism comes in many shapes and forms, different colors, men, women. So there's no one size fits all for the particular person which is why profiling is a waste of time. But regardless of where you're from, if you're a terrorist, you're going to engage in one of the, or perhaps more of the indicators that I talk about. So let's get into, I want to get to the indicators and kind of leave us open on that loop for just a second. Let's back up and talk about the kind of the science behind indicators. So it's not just say a, a behavior, but talk to me about what was the training like? And can you share any insights with us about how, how you learn to read people, how you learn to be, again, I would imagine you'd be over observant maybe, or more observant than the average person. Um, is there training for that initially? Do, does the FBI look for people that have a heightened awareness already? Where do you put in like personality versus training and observation skills? Just talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, so it's a combination of both. Certainly, we want people who are situationally aware, but that's a skill you can heighten and develop as well. And it it's not applicable to just the FBI. I think it's applicable into anything you do, including if you're in business, being aware of your uh, situation or surroundings. You know, an example I can think of off the top of my head, I was sitting at a title company not too long ago when I was getting ready to buy a home. And uh, the woman at the desk uh, I was dealing with, I asked her, so uh, what airline does your husband fly for? And she just looked at me like, how would I know that? And I didn't even think about it, but it occurred to me. So she was married. She had a wedding ring on. She was wearing a pendant of an airplane. And she had pictures of posing with, I presume, her husband in these various tropical places. So I just put two and two together. I said, well, he clearly doesn't fly a small plane. He's flying somewhere that you can travel to these places. So he must be an airline pilot. And I was correct. But that's the kind of thing in drawing in all the different outside information you see and being able to put it together in a logical story. Like her first reaction is almost, wait a minute, how did you know that? Like, are you psychic? 
And you're like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very much paying attention to the details around me and then putting them together. So is that something, do you remember always sort of being like that? Like, were you like that as a kid or is that something that you got trained into more? I think I was a little more perceptive uh, when I was younger than maybe the average person, but I would say the same applies to probably every FBI agent out there. However, the day you arrive at the academy, they teach you about being aware of your surroundings and getting to pick up on clues. We actually have part of our course of instruction is communications, and we spend more time in that class than virtually anything else with the exception of perhaps time on the gun range. But learning how to interview people, how to pick up nonverbals, how to realize what are they really saying when they say one thing but probably mean something else. And learning to develop and heighten those skills, which can be learned. So let's talk about some of those skills uh, in just a moment here. So we're sitting here with John Yannarelli, former FBI agent and uh, working in the, in the cyber division of FBI and counterterrorism, worked on things like the 9-11 attacks, Oklahoma City bombing. And he's talking about his new book, How to Stop a Terrorist Before It's Too Late. And we're getting into the indicators to look for, to avoid, and to, to observe potential acts of terror. But also we're getting into right now the how to observe people. So what are some of the, the, the specific things you might look for that the average person might not look for? And what I'm thinking of is, you know, if, if I see someone smiling big, yeah, they're probably having a good time. And if they're frowning, they're having a bad time. These are these obvious ones. What are some of the less obvious but very, very important um, things to look for that you can you can train yourself to watch and observe? Well, in a business setting, what I would encourage people to do is be aware of the body movements because it's very important to be able to read the people you're speaking with. So, for example, you know, I could be sitting across the table talking to somebody and they're smiling or they're listening patiently to what I'm saying. But if they're jiggling your foot, that generally is a sign that uh, they're uncomfortable, they're not happy, they want this conversation to move along and wrap up uh, because they're not really interested. Same if uh, they're kicking their foot up and down, uh, just swinging their leg a little bit in a sitting position. That's another negative reaction that somebody is not happy with this conversation and wants it to end. Now, as an investigator, if I'm interviewing somebody who I suspect of a crime, that's a great sign to me. That means that all right, this person's probably involved and he wants to get out of here. But if you're a business person trying to close a deal or sell a product, you need to recognize the signs and take a different approach because you're losing your potential customer. So it might mean they want to get out of there the same way, almost like an inquisition. So let me ask you this then. <laughs> so in the NLP field, which again, a lot of our listeners can be familiar with NLP, um, it has been taught for years that generally speaking, uh, motions don't mean anything unless you can contextualize them or unless you know what it means for the person. For instance, crossing their arms. I've always learned and taught that, you know, crossing arms doesn't necessarily mean they're closed off or they're protecting themselves as some people teach, or it could mean they're cold or it could mean it's comfortable that way. It's more about watching how they change and how they act. That's my take. I'm curious, what is your take? How do, do moves body language have intrinsic meaning that you can cross contextualize to anyone or any situation? Are there certain aspects like that? Or is it hit or miss? Talk to me about kind of the meaning of these different things. 
if you're looking at just the singular action, you can't read and say, okay, well, this person is upset because they're crossing their arms. They might be cold too, or it might just be a comfortable sitting position. What you have to do is look at the whole context, the topic of what you're discussing, and there'll be more than one indicator and more than one movement. Um, if you're standing with the person, they're crossing their arms, and one foot is pointing in your direction, but another foot is pointing off to the side instead of standing straight towards you, that's an indication that they're preparing to get away from you and that they don't want to continue the conversation. It's things like that. Likewise, there's also indicators of they're happy to be speaking with you and that things are going well. So, for example, if uh, somebody starts playing with their wedding ring a little bit, that's a uh, basically a soothing motion. It's sort of like I'm comfortable in this setting and I en I'm enjoying this setting. Picking up in these little clues and you can decide, do I want to continue to pursue this line of conversation or do I want to change directions based on the indicators that I'm receiving? That's interesting. So the wedding ring. So I would think of that as, uh, you know, like similar to if someone's sitting, like maybe rubbing their arm a little bit or they kind of rub their hand on their uh, leg, like a self-soothing gesture of some kind. I would, mm -hmm. I would have thought that would have been maybe if they weren't doing it now they are, it's a sign of being nervous, but you're saying that's actually a sign usually of like positivity that they're starting to enjoy this. And, and is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. It can be a sign of nervousness too, but once again, in the business setting, it's unlikely if you're meeting with a potential client, uh, they're going to be nervous. It might very well can be interpreted as an indication of that, you know, I enjoy this. I feel a comfort zone with who I'm speaking with. Now in my field, investigating a criminal, if they start playing with the rings, they're trying to calm themselves down before they then go into the other behavior of kicking their feet and ready to get up and leave. So, so it can be contextual. So it, that makes sense. So if I'm getting interrogated, and I wanted to actually ask you a few questions on that, if I can. Sure. If we find ourselves in the uncomfortable place <laughs> and uh, of being questioned by authorities, by police, by customs agents, by whomever it might be, do you have any, I don't know, like tips? So again, like let's assume innocence, but you know, it, it could it could be nerve wracking, or I don't know. What I do understand is, if you're investigating, you're probably looking to try to get a confession or looking to try to find the truth to things. Tell me, as a retired FBI agent, looking back at, at years of I'm sure interviewing people, what are the authorities or what are the police generally trained to do? What's the outcome in their mind? Um, and what are some, I don't know, some ideas or tips to make sure, I guess we keep ourselves safe, that we don't inadvertently step on a landmine? So I would tell you, I would encourage your audience very highly that if you're being interviewed by law enforcement and you're guilty, give a full confession, make our jobs a little easier. But barring that, if you're not <laughs> going to get around to doing that immediately, I, I will tell you that they're not nearly as confrontational as television makes it out to be. Because the reality is people don't talk when they're confronted. It's all about getting you relaxed, getting your guard down, making you feel comfortable. That uh, Oftentimes, it's we're working together to find a solution. Even when I know a person's committed a heinous crime, a lot of what I've tried to do is give them a face-saving way out. If I'm talking to somebody that uh, hurt a child, for example, I might say, look, you know, you're a good person. I know this is not you that would do this sort of thing. Something terrible must have happened that caused you to not become you. 
And uh, I know you're capable of going back and being that person ever again. But let's talk about how you got there so that maybe we'll know for the future of what's a good way that you and others can avoid that. And they suddenly become my colleague in trying to do investigations and finding the answers. But there are people who are guilty of crimes are always looking for a way to excuse their behavior. And if they have any conscience at all. So in a way, you give them that excuse, this the face saving, almost like a technique. So you'd say, listen, this isn't your normal character, I'm sure. And then they're more likely to go, well, I do agree with you and maybe confess or, or get into something. So what, what if, like, say, what, I don't know, what if a law enforcement agent is kind of doing those things and I'm going, you know, I, I don't, I, I, how do I say that? Like, I, I feel like there, there's a measure of, I could get myself into trouble. Let's assume I'm, you know, we're not the criminal, we're not the guilty person, but I don't know, maybe, maybe you were involved with something, you know, and maybe it's something minor and you're certainly hoping not to get the book thrown at you. (laughs) Are there things to watch for like that where I'm like, hang on a second, you're trying to help me to save face. So I'll admit more than I have to. I don't really want to. Do you have any kind of the, like I said, the, the protection advice of things to, the, the techniques that they might use to just be aware of, right? So you can have a fair conversation. If you haven't done anything and uh, you're simply either a witness or you have no information, stand your ground and say, look, I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to offer. Love to help you, but I can't. And, uh, you know, if you get questions like, well, what if this happened and you're not involved? You simply say, look, I'm not going to speculate. I have no idea. I wasn't there. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with uh, asserting your innocence. And I've had many people who, in the course of investigation, I suspected might be involved. They asserted their innocence. And sure enough, they were not involved. And I moved on to looking to the next person. Remember, a lot of these interviews are not custodial. It's not like you've been arrested and you're sitting there in handcuffs. They're voluntary. You can get up and walk out anytime you want just like your customers can, for that matter. And so it's my opportunity to try to get the information or close the sale before you get up and leave. So, so nice to remember that too. So, you know, avoid the what if scenarios, what I'm hearing as well. Um, I'm not going to speculate on that. Just because they ask you a question doesn't mean you have to say, here's my answer. And that's probably a good thing. Let's talk about... um, Let's get back to those indicators because I, I, I'm very interested in that. And certainly, I want to end on, on a high note of keeping us safe and making sure we know things to look for, whether it's in a neighbor, whether it's on the train or in a plane somewhere. And I'm guessing from how we've tied it in so far that in a way, there's probably would some of these indicators um, as a metaphor branch into like the business world where you can see a nervousness of somebody and that might be an indicator to watch for as well? Or are we going to talk strictly about avoiding terrorist attacks just so I I know where to take it? No, absolutely. I think this is fully applicable to the business world. And, uh, you know, the terrorism is the distant cousin of the active shooter because many of the indicators can be the same. And any one of those things, when you think about it, how they can disrupt the business world. For example, during the Gabby Gifford shooting, we closed down that shopping center with all the mini stores there for over a week while we discussed and conducted the investigation. Those are businesses that could not do anything for that period of time. When you think of terrorist attacks, uh, certainly 9-11, but a lot of smaller such attacks, 
Likewise, shutting down businesses uh, that can't operate, put their employees to work, bring in an income. So these are vitally important to businesses. There's a vested interest to try to prevent these things from happening. Uh, you mentioned the backpacks, which I think we all know by now after the Boston bombing. Yes. There's similar things. For example, uh, unusual clothing. Uh, we look at certain terrorist attacks, for example, in an airport overseas, uh, the Belgian bombing. There were two individuals pushing luggage carts. They were both wearing just one glove on one hand. And the reason for that was is they were carrying a detonator in that hand. They didn't want static electricity to set set off the bomb prematurely. But, you know, if you notice somebody dressed unusually, I'm talking to you this morning from Scottsdale, Arizona, where it's already over 100 degrees. If somebody's wearing a long coat, perhaps they're hiding something. Why would they be wearing a coat like that in this kind of weather? It's things like that that we look for as a potential indicator. So unusual clothing in the environment or in the context where they're in, that's important to know. Uh, what are some of the other, let's, we have time probably to hit a couple of different, what are a couple of major indicators that would be really, really good to, uh, if you had the world's view for a moment, what do we all need to know for sure? So social media is a big place and generally terrorists want to share their messages, just like active shooters want to share their messages. If you see something on social media, it appears time and again, we hear after the fact, oh, he was posting this or she was saying that, but nobody took the time to notify law enforcement about it. Let law enforcement know. It doesn't mean somebody's going to get arrested, but they'll take a look and they may even go out and talk to the person, which could be enough to dissuade them from taking on those kind of acts. <clears throat> Likewise, with your own business, set up some Google alerts for your business and your business name and see what people are saying about your business. And certainly if somebody is disgruntled and really unhappy and posting negative things about your business, you wanna be aware of that because it could give you an indication, be one of the indicators that there could be a problem down the road. Well, what a great idea. And just, I mean, no matter what, what a great idea to set up a, you can go to Google and search Google alerts, set up a Google alert for your name, for your business name, and whatever else you might have in the public and depending on the size of the business, I think that's a really, really smart idea. And right, I've got my name and my business set up under a Google alert and every morning I get an email from Google. It gives me the updates of every place my name appeared the day before and whether it be good or bad. Fortunately, it's mostly good, Sure, but uh, it's good to know what is happening out there. And especially, even if it's not terrorism, but it's just something negative, it gives you a chance to address it. Yeah, if it's a Yelp review or a whatever it is, exactly, to, to kind of help manage reputation. That's a real smart idea. Well, John, thank you so much for, for sharing some of that with us as well. Um, where can we find you? Where can we find more about you? I know your book's on Amazon and probably wherever we can find books. Um, tell us a little bit about the How to Spot a Terrorist Before It's Too Late, where do you want us to find that, and where can we follow up with you? Well, you can uh, find out everything you need to know about my books or anywhere else. Uh, visit my website, which is fbijohn.com. I also suggest follow me on Twitter. Every day I give out a safety tip to keep you, your family, your business safe, whether it's terrorism, active shooter, and especially cyber, which is one of the most likely places that's going to affect your business. Find me Twitter at fbijohn. Man, that is, uh, I'm following Twitter, FBI John, J-O-H-N, of course, right now. And there you are. Awesome. That's cool. So this is really neat. Like you have a tweet about ISIS using Instagram to provoke terrorism. You have some really, really interesting um, 
here's one about a lawsuit, nasty, get, getting a nasty letter from an attorney. Maybe it's a cyber scam. How do you spot cyber scams? So really, really great. You're also, of course, a regular correspondent for Fox Business Nationally. You're the, uh, the expert go-to law enforcement for these types of crimes. So follow John, FBI John, at LinkedIn, Twitter, and FBIJohn.com. And grab the latest book, How to Spot a Terrorist Before It's Too Late. It might just save a life and it might be yours. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you, man. It was great to meet you and really, really wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much. Matt, thanks for having me today. I've enjoyed it. All right, guys, that is the show this week. I hope that was that was thought-provoking and interesting. I'd love to hear your comments as well. Um, we're looking at doing more live uh, follow-ups as well after podcast episodes. So if you like what you heard here, let me know at Matt Brownie on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, anywhere you get that. You can follow me there. You'll see pictures of my family. You'll see stuff about the podcast. And you'll get notifications on IG Live or Facebook Live. We're going to go live with a guest within a few days of the podcast episode dropping. So when that happens, make sure you follow. And let me know if you have any questions for FBI John. As usual, get out this week. Crush it and stay safe.